audience sits in silent anticipation, watching the stage for signs of movement. The performance is sold out, the players ageless and the players familiar. The troupe wait in the wings, watching from behind the curtain as the audience shuffles in and finds their seats. They're here because they were promised a powerful production, with fireworks, lights, songs, dancing and poetry. The crowd were expecting a new cast, a new plot, new twists, a new resolution. A hush falls over the auditorium, and the air fills with excited anticipation. But the roles were cast years ago, and the same faceless actor steps onto the stage. He pulls on a mask to conceal a tongue which flicks between the teeth of a well-trained mouth, ready to recite words from a script which was written centuries ago. The nameless thespian who has been on this stage at every performance the show has ever had is obscured behind this facade. The spectators don't see the cracks in the mask which reveal the identity of the imperious illusionist. Those who came in with the cheap tickets don't realise that their view is obscured and they can't see beyond the mirrors and the cheap tricks which misdirect and mislead as the magician manipulates them. The narrative always leads back to the same predestined plot and the same dissatisfying ending. The onlookers don't see the strings pulling at the puppet who whispers comforting words. They feel important. They are distinguished and honoured guests, hand-picked to be party to this production. But when the narrative deviates from the one that was advertised and the sleight of hand becomes more strained, the spectators in the gallery realise that this is not the performance they were promised. Finally, they see that the patrons sitting in the stalls have been given free drinks and they didn't have to pay for the best seats in the house and they've been given programmes which tell a different story. When the house lights flicker on, they begin to understand that they were lured here to fill the seats that nobody wanted, to cheer for the chiseler and boo the understudy off the stage. They ask the ushers for the name of the show and discover it's the same disappointment as when last they were here at the end of the last season. Now the audience is all but lost and as the protagonist steps into the spotlight, they shuffle in their seats and begin to stand up. But his soft and whispered words hold promises of second act that is unmissable, magnificent. They take their seats mesmerise. By the time the curtain falls on their feet, a standing ovation, all of them cheer as the cast take a bow and the flock is now eager for an encore, as once again they fall under the spell of the greatest showman. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Resonate podcast, Creativity and Performance. My name is Emily McGrath. This month, we continue with our series theme to explore different facets of creativity. To do that, I was lucky to be able to speak with three fantastic guests. First, Kevin Lewis talks about being a priest who also uses poetry and performance in his work while drumming and running on the side. Next, our poet and resident for the month, Lucy McGrath, reflects on poetry and it being read aloud not being a performer, and her early poetic masterpieces. Finally, I speak to Lookman Ali, who told me about how his life is fired by imagination and the interfaith and intercultural spheres of performance he engages with through his theatre company, Chayal, and as a trustee for the arts organisation, Amal. I really enjoyed speaking to Kevin, Lucy and Lookman, and I hope you will enjoy their diverse insights into creativity and performance. As ever, with Resonate, we cultivate an open-minded space to explore ideas, experience different perspectives, and listen to new voices.
Hello, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us on the Resonate podcast today. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Do you think of yourself as a creative person? I do. I think I think in in what I do, you have to be creative. My main role is a vicar, so I lead a lead a church in Carshalton Beaches in South London. Uh, well, the public role of that is upfront. Usually, when we're not in pandemics, it's leading large groups, small groups, leading services, preaching, which are essentially monologues for ten to fifteen minutes. During the pandemic, that's moved online. Trying to be creative with how we do the same thing, but not in person, and learning about recording techniques and editing and speaking to camera that kind of thing do you always think that you've been quite creative is that something that is a strand throughout your life I don't think I've always thought of myself as creative but I've always appreciated creativity in others the people that I look up to and the people that I remember listening to and hearing or seeing are generally people who who have said things a little bit unexpected or a little bit creatively when I went into church leadership and church ministry I didn't want to become boring I suppose I've got this fear of of being boring I don't, at least I don't want to bore myself I use that as a spur to try and be a bit creative and do things a bit differently are there performers who stick out for you who you notice who you take ideas away from I quite like Trevor Noah I, I've watched some of his tv stuff on YouTube and then I watch some of his stand-up I find the way that he he communicates is very funny but he's very deep uh, and he touches on on really tricky subjects like race in a in a really deep kind of way. I really value that. Someone I loved when I was younger was Eddie Izzard. I just, when I was kind of late teens, early 20s, I went to see Eddie Izzard a couple of times and I just thought he was very clever, very clever with words. And he, he I mean, his stream of consciousness is, is off the scale. I think one of the things that he does that I really like is he, he, he brings back recurring themes throughout a show. So he'll drop an idea in at the beginning and then at the end he'll, he'll refer back to Mrs. Bad Crumble again or whatever it is that, that he's done. And I think that is very clever. If I see that happening, when I see people have really crafted what they're doing, I like it. Can you think of a time when you were younger that you can remember that first experience of performing? My first memory of performing is the last year of primary school when I, I was the lead role in our school play, which was called Super Cool Carl. But I was Super Cool Carl and I didn't have to do much apart from stand there dressed in a white jacket and shades, which was really cool in 1988. But what I, when I really remember is when I started enjoying being up front and performing, I guess I'm being crazy, was in the sixth form. And we used to have these sixth form soirees, which were a bit like talent nights. But I compared two of those with a friend and we found that we really loved doing that kind of spontaneous comparing where you've got scripted links between acts, but actually you bounce off the, the audience or what's just happened and each other. And I, I really enjoyed doing that. And that's when I first realised that I could communicate with, a, with an audience. What do you get from performing? What do you, do you like about performing? I like making people think, particularly in a church context, when I do things that aren't just normal preaching. So sometimes I do things that are more poetic, a bit like spoken word. And you can take people on a, on a journey to somewhere unexpected or somewhere they think is, is safe. And then suddenly you drop something in which, which spins things on its head or surprises people. I like that moment, whether that's something funny or something serious. I don't usually think of that sort of thing as performing, but I guess in a way it is. 
but you're performing for a purpose. You're trying to make a point that, that sinks in to people. So it's not just about being funny or clever. Um, but for me, it's about pointing to God and what I'm trying to say. Is it, is it a craft for me? Is it something that you work at, you hone, you practice? Yes, I, I, I do. I, I practice it basically by doing it. I think when, I, when I've done things that I feel are a bit more performy, my sort of spoken words, uh, talks and, and sermons and poems, that kind of thing, I don't tend to practice them and I don't tend to do them more than once. So I never learn it and do it unscripted or, or spontaneously everything I do is, is kind of single use, which means it's different, I guess, from something that, that you do repeatedly to different audiences. Maybe there's a fragility to that because it's not honed. So sometimes I'll get to the end and think, oh, I, you know, if I was doing that again, I would have done it differently, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing it again. So <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's unique, I suppose, in that sense. I don't particularly like reading poetry. It's not something that I find easy. I, I have books of poetry because when I started writing my own, I thought I'd better read other people's. And I don't really enjoy reading other people's poetry because, yeah, I think it has to be read. You have to, it has to be heard because then you get, you get the meaning across in the way, in the way that you emphasise things, the way that you pause, the way that you run words together, all that kind of thing is, for me, it's part of the craft of it. I suppose it would be weird to hear someone else reading my poetry as well. I only really write in order to to read it out, whether that's in public or just for myself. Sometimes I write and, and put it on my blog so I never actually perform it, but it's there for other people to see. But I do prefer it being being performed. There's, there's so much more than the words in poetry. Like the gaps between words are just as important in many ways. I think I used to be a bit more obsessed or not obsessed, a bit more concerned about patterns, having verses and things that matched. And so you sort of try and write an eight line verse and then another eight line verse. I think I realized that actually the, my reason for writing is not to write really good poetry, but it's to get across the message. So it tends to be a bit more stream of consciousness now where I, I do try and get, get rhymes in, but it's, it's a bit more like you might hear in, in rap, that kind of thing where it's, it's less formulaic a bit more free form I suppose. One of my other uh, obsessions is park run. I'm on the um, the core team for my local park run, Banstead Woods. Uh, shout out to Banstead Woods Park Run. And so I get to do the announcements at the beginning. Remarkably like church, we all gather, mostly people are late and you do notices for ages, by which time people are a bit bored and then you get on with the real business. So I've tried to make the notices a bit more creative. So sometimes I'll do them in poetry form. I write just a little thing where you try and get things to rhyme or be funny or that kind of thing. I remember the first time I tried doing that because I think it was the first time I'd tried doing performing, I suppose, in front of a non-church audience. And in church, they're kind of on my side. You know, they, they kind of want you to succeed. Whereas when you're doing stuff in front of people you don't really know and they haven't got a clue about you, they just might think, who's that idiot <laughs> doing something that we've never heard before apart from? But actually, I found it went down really well. Uh, that's quite fun. Where do your ideas come from? Usually they start with a phrase that drops into my head. So if I'm thinking about writing a sermon, if I have a phrase that drops into my head uh, that sounds a bit poetic, at that point in the creative journey, I decide whether to jump on the, the white horse that runs through your mind and you go, shall I go in this direction um, or, or shall I not? It's very easy to stay safe uh, and just do what you know. But sometimes it's right to jump on that on that white horse that runs through your mind and go with it. So usually it is a, a phrase that, that's dropped into my head that I then play with, I roll it, I roll it around. But I usually write them in one go. I may, I may go back to it a day later and, and do some editing or tidy it up or I usually shorten it 
but yeah it's usually a phrase and I usually write it in in one go and what about feedback but do you like feedback is that something that you find helpful or not helpful I like to hear specific things that have that have kind of touched someone or that they remember when people talk about a particular line or phrase or or the way it was delivered and then actually in lockdown doing doing some of them to camera which was a completely new experience for me learning how to learning how to speak to camera and uh, and record and I found that people who've been watching our church services generally have have appreciated it because it's a bit different because it can be a bit monotonous watching a similar sort of thing online all the time out of the context of the community part of the I guess again the fragility of of performers is that sometimes we lay ourselves open when we do a a performance or a word or whatever Um, immediately afterwards isn't always the time we best receive feedback because we can we can be very fragile is it funny that in some ways a lot of the things you do are are creative and then met by a silence which isn't reflective of actually how people engage with them at all yeah i think i think that is right and and it i guess that's a, that's one of the differences i would i would see between performing in the context that i that i usually do it and and people who perform on a stage you know for um, for paying guests the positive side of that for me is I've got no I've got no pressure to to perform in order to to generate income and to be good at it so that I so that it's my because it's my job I choose to do it in in the job that I already have I think I think you could end up trying too hard sometimes to try and get a reaction I guess I've stumbled a couple of times on that with with trying to be funny because I tend to find my my best humor is spontaneous not scripted so I've tried to script funny things and they don't really work. That's a gift other people have. Whereas I'm much better at oh, spur of the moment kind of things. So, I mean, you've talked about connections between your job and with this creativity. But I think that more directly for you, how does your faith affect and influence the, the things that you mm. create? Profoundly affects how I'm creative because I think God is endlessly creative. and when you look at our whole story as as seen in the bible there's so much creativity in that there's so much poetry there's so much spoken word there's so much metaphor and imagery and all that kind of stuff and i think we miss out on that aspect of god's character if we don't include it in what we do and it's always there but sometimes it gets a bit stifled in church context so you look at the lyrics and some of the hymns which are fantastic lyrics but they they get kind of stuck in a in a in a turgid old victorian organ melody or something and need to be broken free of that and and i think the the spoken word in the sermon is 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 like that as well it 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 needs sometimes it gets like a caged bird and needs to be let free to be a bit more experimental and my my understanding of of god is that he approves of risks (laughs) and taking risks and so i i think god is god is creative so we in turn should be able to use our creativity and our creative gifts to do to do what we do it then does feed back into into faith because I don't like being bored and so I like I like being creative for my own self as well as for other people's and I know others think the same some people don't get bored in, in the way that I do they don't mind things being the same week on week which is which is fine but I I do so I, I think to keep our faith 
interesting and, and inspired we need to we need to embrace the creative side of our characters I think you've talked very specifically about perhaps performances as a vicar as a priest but is there also a performance to being a priest that and that's one of the, that's one of the big uh, the big debates I suppose in in um, in my world um, yes there is a, there is an element of of my role which is performance um, and if you look at some some churches, particularly the more um, sort of traditional liturgical churches, the whole of a service is, is a performance. It's a drama that's reenacted by people in costume doing things in a particular way, singing in a particular way that is is performance and is meant to be performance. And, and, it, and, and if it's done like that, it should be done well, I think. And there's nothing worse than hearing people read liturgy in a in a bored voice. My way of doing church is not that, but the whole leading services, in a sense, you're, you're, you're part MC, uh, part prophet, and part performer. For me, the the whole the whole thing is the the performance is never about me and what I'm doing. It's always about reflecting that back to God. Um, so it's that weird kind of performing where you're sort of performing, but but wanting to stay out of the spotlight, which becomes harder the more <laughs> the more you you don't mind the spotlight and the idea of personality in priesthood and whether we should be using our creative bits that, which which draw attention to ourselves which kind of goes against the kind of humility aspects of of what we're trying to do so it's it's how you how you take that and def, deflect that off yourself is a big struggle sometimes and if you if you could pick anything being a priest being a runner um you're a drummer as well yeah. what do you just most love doing just for you regardless of the sphere or the reason if you could perform anything what what would it be that you would most choose to do it would be a a poem that i that i incorporated the drums into uh, that would be <laughs> that would be my favorite thing i love the power of rhythm and in fact one of the one of the things i, I remember doing that had the most profound effects on on me and those around me was when I was at Vicar College, we took over the the worship uh, for one evening and did it purely on the drums and rhythm and vocals, just did it with with percussion and, and vocals. It was just so profound to just hear voices and rhythm was really good. And one of the things that I enjoyed the most was I read Ezekiel 37, the, the dry bones passage, kind of interpreted it on the drums. That was, I guess, in a way, performance. But it was it was with a with a point, trying to bring out the meaning of the passage and interpret the passage in a in a fresh way. It really came alive. Is performance for you something quite physical? Yeah, it is. It is. And and now as I as I talk, I'm remembering that I I did I did something similar um, in retelling the story of Jesus calming the storm, where you're just building up the noise of the storm, and then suddenly you cut the noise as Jesus says, "Be still." There is definitely a physicality to that, and and use of light and shades in volume you know i guess it's the same in spoken word uh, the way you might raise raise the tempo or raise the volume and then drop it those are all things that i think are really they're quite easy to do but aren't often done um well thank you Kevin. thank you very much for exploring creativity and performance uh, you're welcome thank you for inviting me Thank you for joining us. You are our poet in residence for the month, and we're going to talk a little bit about poetry and performance. Do you think?
perceive yourself as a performer? No, I don't think so. Not in the artistic sense. So I guess then you write poetry and there is often a connection between poetry that's written and poetry that's performed. Do you think that your poetry needs to be performed? Well, I work quite a lot with how it looks on the page and like how the flow reads on the page and like the shape of the poetry on the page. But I actually think most of them, they don't necessarily need to be performed, but I think they do need to be read aloud. That doesn't need to be a performance. So I try and write it in such a structure that anyone could read it. And can you think of your youngest memory, I guess either as a performer or just that creative kind of memory? What What is the earliest time that you can think of? The earliest time I can remember writing a poem was when I was in reception and I wrote a poem about the snow, which I mainly remember because our, our mother... Do, they, do you know my sister on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, so I mainly remember that poem because our mother has reminded me at least once every six months for the last 26 years. So that's the first poem I remember writing. And then I also wrote one a couple of years later, which was in Christmas cards over and over and over and over again and read in church, even when it was, again, like 15 years old. But the first time I actually remember performing would either be the plays we used to put on for our babysitters or the time I performed the violin just like the same open strings over and over again at our grandmother's 70th birthday party. Did you enjoy those experiences? I did enjoy performing the violin. I thought I was playing run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run, run. And everyone else thought I was playing happy birthday, but as I was just using one note, maybe two, very scratchy. But I was riding that wave. I thought it was brilliant. Everyone looked really happy. So I think they were in, in hindsight, they may have been grimacing. And have you always then written poetry from that age on? Was is that like since you were five? Fairly sporadically. And I'm not sure, but I feel like we were encouraged at home to write poetry for purposes like Christmas cards. But I can't actually remember if that's true or if we and I just did it because we wanted to. Then I would say sporadically after that, I had an absolute one-hit wonder. Well, obviously it wasn't a one-hit wonder because those two other poems are still living strong. I had a three-hit wonder with a, a poem called Dog Run. <laughs> and that poem also still circulating in the family circles, which I wrote on a walk at Ashdown Forest, which went along the lines of... <laughs> I can remember this day. Oh. It's coming back to me now. Like, Here is a dog. No, I am a dog <laughs> running after my master, running, running, faster and faster. I see a stick and what do I do? I pick up the stick and I bite it in two. I mean, I want to say it's great for that age group, but no, I just did it sporadically. I did a poem for GCSE English. Again, another hit that has done the family rounds for years. And then I think I paused, really. My friend Adelaide and I, I lived at university with Adelaide in a house share. We used to actually perform. We were five people. It was me and Adelaide and then three guys. And we used to perform what we call kitchen slam poetry in the kitchen. And I don't think they enjoyed it. Adelaide and I enjoyed it. And we would make them like write themes or we'd like write themes on paper like we would with charades. And then we'd have to, when we get a piece of paper, then we had to perform a poem. So it's been like sporadic, but I would say the last few years I've done more poetry. 
and had some published and I did a writing course just sort of extra so I think it has become more focused um in the last few years and our dad had a notebook where he'd written all his favorite poems I think he did inspire I don't know about you but me with his love of poetry and his main love as I would see it was the highwayman which I have seen him perform with his cousin and he absolutely loved Dr Zeus and always gave it a cracking performance of Dr Zeus especially Green Eggs and Ham but other ones as well and the Jabberwocky I think and the, the poem in Flanders Fields and I have a lot of those poems now so we also used to have like poetry on tape and then poetry on cd when cds became a thing um, and a lot of poetry books both nonsense and otherwise and then I remember as for GCSE we obviously studied at GCSE English the anthology the AQA anthology and as part of the GCSE English course you went to London and saw a lot of those poets like Simon Armitage and oh what's that guy called his poem we love John Agar John Agar, yeah. So him performing, performing his poem, Half Cost. That is actually one of the poor performances that sticks with me. And if I ever read that poem, I still hear it in his voice. Because it was so brilliant. And that's the kind of poem that has to be performed. Because it came alive in the sense that it wasn't when we did the studying of it at school. Simon Armitage, I think, was quite good. And I've listened to his podcast of late. And he is very, like, he did um, a podcast series from his lectures he was doing at Oxford. I think it's quite old, but that was really interesting. But him and Carol Ann Duffy and then John Agard were excellent. I suppose we have been around poetry. I have been around poetry. We used to have Michael Rosen. We had him on tape in his poetry. I actually love his poetry because that was the first time I came in contact with non, really non-formal, non-structured poetry. That's almost poetical prose. I still love Michael Rosen, still listen to those. So loads of those sorts of things. And I suppose actually we were completely surrounded by poetry. And now, where do your ideas come from? A lot of the recent ones that I've written, they come from... I did two courses, Creative Writing 1 and Creative Writing 2. And the second course, I only wrote poetry. And the first course, it was a module on poetry. So then we were either given themes or a style or like a broad sort of topic as a writing prompt. So that's like a whole group of poems that came out of that. And the one that I had published in this literary magazine came out of the first writing course and I think then the prompt was actually just to do with the format of the poem so the theme came from that I had a friend that had died so that is what I was thinking about when I wrote the poem so that's just sort of what came out but otherwise I do a lot of what I would call poetic journaling so I have like notebooks of material that I will dip into and turn into a poem and it's often written on either sort of abstract thought or stream of consciousness Sometimes it's like a little small section of poetry. Sometimes it's just prose that I will read through again. And then I'll take little parts of that to turn into a poem. Because sometimes I've written sort of almost a creative non-fiction little essay to myself. And then I will completely rework that and turn it into a poem. So it sounds like what you're talking about there is the kind of craft of poetry. Is that something you've, obviously you've got, you've done these courses. Has your poetry changed as you focus more on this sense of kind of craft of poetry? I mean, yes and no. I think that I'm lucky in the sense that once I've got an idea, I just write, like I can think about it in my head for sometimes minutes, sometimes days. But as soon as I go to write it, it just comes out. I can almost do the whole poem. And then I will rework it. I'll move things around. 
but that side of it, the ideas, I don't find very hard. And actually some of the language I think is quite intuitive. I quite like language and the way it sounds together. I'm less good at that now that I live in a second language. Yeah, my craft has changed quite a lot. And I think what I really learned is I always do like the informal freeform poetry. But actually, I learned how to write structured poetry. And I found that once you've given yourself a really tight structure, such as the amount of syllables, rhyming structure, lines in verses, that really changed my poetry. Because once I couldn't just freeform write, you have to think in a whole different way about it. You have to find words that like fit in the syllables, in the, uh, the rhythm. And you have to, once you're really sticking to that, that element as well of how the lines are going to be, how many stanzas and stuff that's gone, that's already predetermined. So then you have to fit an idea into this framework. But I found that to be really interesting. And in fact, I found a poem that I had written as a sort of throwaway assignment practice task in the class. And it caught me so off guard because it was written in formal structure. that I spent ages Googling it because I was convinced I'd just taken a note of someone else's poem. But I have come to the conclusion that I did write it myself, especially as I'd saved it under like Lucy poetry. So... That has changed because I felt like I couldn't write formal poetry. And also the formal structured poetry, I feel sometimes if you're rhyming, it takes away from the seriousness, but actually it doesn't, (laughs) is my takeaway from those courses. And it depends how you rhyme. You don't have to do like the end of line rhyming. You can do internal rhyming um, or like middle of the line rhyming or like rhyming sounds or rhyming consonants. So there's a whole world that opened up there that I hadn't really considered before I did the course. Um, and you were just talking about, for our listeners, that you actually live in a different country, you live in Sweden, so you speak two languages. Is, is writing poetry in Swedish on your agenda for the future? Never tried it. No, I think that's not really on my radar at the moment. So I speak quite formal Swedish. I've learned whilst working for social services, working at a children's home, having like dealings with immigration, having dealings with social workers doctors, lawyers, all sorts of stuff like that. What I first learned was a very formal type of Swedish. Now I am better at like the daily kind of Swedish, but my go-to, especially if I'm tired, is to be very formal. So I don't know that I could craft a poem and I don't have the same, there's some words that I couldn't really translate to English, but you know what they feel like and what they mean in Swedish. I couldn't construct that into a poem, at least not now. So tell us a little bit about your thinking for the poem you wrote for the podcast. Yeah, this poem, so it was obviously about performance, and I felt like that was quite a broad topic because performance can mean so many different things. Like, you can be performative at work. I sometimes think I'm performative at work in that I have a specific role that I need to play when I meet my client. It's, like, a bit serious, and there's certain things you can't say, and there's certain structures you have to go through, and you can't be religious, you can't be public about your politics, you can't be public about your identity. So that, I think, is a bit of a performance. And then I thought about politics, and I thought about social media performance, the idea of, like, creating a persona online that's a performance, and I thought about identity performance when you're projecting an identity that perhaps isn't necessarily the identity, health performance, if you're masking any kind of you know, health problem. So these are all things I had in my mind. And what I went for in the end was political performance and establishment performance. The idea then of how is politics performative? You find writing poetry, is it a helpful process? Do you enjoy doing it? What, how do you kind of think about poetry when you come to write it? So I ha- it's quite conceptual in the beginning. Like I kept saying to you, I've got a great idea for a poem. I haven't written it yet but it's really great. 
obviously the audience will decide if that's true or not. So I went through a couple of weeks, maybe even, of playing with like the different ideas. And I looked up, for this poem, I had to look up a lot of words that I didn't already know, or I'd forgotten to do with sort of performance and theatres and actors and all sort of words that were linked to that. So that was quite interesting because I learned some new words or remembered some old words such as imperious and chiseler, which are not words that are in my daily vocabulary, but they work quite well, I thought, in the poem. So I do enjoy doing it, absolutely, but I don't do it as much, but that's because I have a lot of other creative hobbies as well. So I sort of rotate which creative hobby I'm interested in any week or month or year. I think there's a, a process, it would be fair to say, for writing poetry for you, which is collaborative, yeah, I don't think that you can write anything without having it sort of peer-reviewed in some way or taking it to a group of other writers because some of the stuff that I might think is obvious is either completely too much in the like subtext or you've over-explained it and made it too obvious because you thought it was going to be too subtle. You need people to tell you, like, this bit you don't actually need, this bit wasn't clear. I just don't think you can write in a vacuum. If I write a poem, it means one thing to me, but as soon as someone else reads it, they have their own relationship with them and it means something different to them. And it's quite interesting to get that feedback and to be able to incorporate that because it's the same with any piece of art. It might be a portrait of, you know, someone's mother, sister, brother, a ballet dancer, but when I go and see that artwork, it means something completely different to me. So I think that's really useful, even if someone's not helping, like collaboratively helping you build the poem, I think you need to absolutely know what the poem is saying to other people, which actually was something that I heard Caroline Duffy speak about at that day that we went to in London, because she had a poem, and I don't know if it was the one about her mother in a polka dot dress. I think it was something to do with her mother and also her as a mother and being pregnant, if I remember correctly. And she was saying how that poem meant one specific thing for her and she was approached by someone who had read the poem and said this was so wonderful because it helped me with this thing and the way you talked about this and it was all about this thing and she went oh it wasn't about that but I suppose it is about that now and the poem grows with the audience so I think having that initial input is really important to know in which direction it's growing. And finally what's next? Do you have more conceptual poems in your head? You're going to take a poetry break? I have a very large and long notebook full of poetry concepts um, as you have said before, what does Lucy McGrath have in that pocket? Conceptually, excellent but unwritten poem. So that is my standard. I do find it easier to write to any kind of deadline, whether I've set that myself, it's part of a course. You're hounding me for a podcast that I said I'd do months ago and then didn't write a poem for. <laughs> that is the easiest thing for me. Or if it's some event or something's happened in my life. then Because I actually you asked that before and I didn't answer it. I think it can be quite therapeutic. And I think it's interesting because we also looked at this in the course I did, you can, you can write a poem and what comes out of your sort of hand when you're writing isn't necessarily what you thought you had in your head. And that a lot of things are buried into the body so that if you just free write, you absolutely surprise yourself with where it goes. And they talk about this actually in um, like looking at trauma therapies, that they get people to write down what they think happened. And what comes out is not what they remembered in their head, but perhaps it is the real version. So that is quite interesting as a sort of thing to play with. Thinking about an event, a memory, a topic, and then just writing and seeing, well, actually, what did I really think about this? It's buried so deep in my subconscious I couldn't access it before. 
Great. Well, thank you so much, Lucy, for giving up your time. Thank you for your creative work in writing poem for the podcast this month. And thank you. Thank you for letting me be on the podcast. My first poetry residency. Hello, I'm here with Lookman Ali, who is a playwright and a lecturer and a social entrepreneur and is involved with the Chayal Theatre Company and also with the organisation AML. And we're going to talk a little bit about all of those things today. So welcome, Lookman. And do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words? Hi, everyone. I'm Lukman Ali. I'm the founding director of Khayal, as Emily has kindly introduced me. I have a background in Middle Eastern languages. So I'm a linguist and I was a linguist and a translator before coming into the performing arts. So the languages that I studied and worked with are Arabic and Persian and Urdu as a translator for publishing houses in the UK and the US and for about 24 years ago now going into theatre because theatre was always my passion from high school. I began being involved in theatre probably in my uh, penultimate year of high school in the US because I'm actually African-American, something else I should perhaps say about my background. I've been I've been living the majority of my life uh, here in the UK since the mid-80s. So yeah, majority of my life uh, on this side of the Atlantic, although I still have family in, 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 in the US. Is there a moment that stands out you first thought this was for you in your in your life? Yes, well, it was, it was actually playing the, the lead role in a high school play about video game addiction, oddly enough. <laughs> Back in the days when we played Pac-Man and uh, Space Invaders in video arcades, and there was a period when young people, uh, just like, you know, today perhaps you have games online now, which have taken over. I mean, you know, we had to go out, leave our house and walk a few blocks to a <laughs> to a video arcade. So it was a bit more difficult then. But I was playing I was playing the lead role in this play. And I think what struck me about theatre was this dialogue that takes place between the performer and the audience. And it's a really immersive dialogue which would go way beyond the words that are spoken by the performer. <laughs> it's something that I'm just fascinated by. It's quite mysterious actually. And science has in, in more recently began to find all sorts of things about what happens to audiences when they're hearing storytelling and the way in which their heartbeats start to synchronize. So I was just fascinated by this, mostly at a more subconscious level, but obviously it had to be sufficiently conscious for me to be thinking about it. But that had a profound effect on me. And it was one particular teacher who really inspired me. And so that seed was planted when I was a 15-year-old. And even though I didn't actually come back into theater, until about 12 years later, it stayed with me and, and it brought me back to, to setting up a theatre company. Yeah, the rest is, you know, history is destiny. <laughs> Was performing and storytelling theatre, were those things that were around you in your family, in your childhood? My family is very artistic. Both my mother and father were very musical. And my mother played the bass my father played the saxophone. They didn't actually play professionally, but they were passionate about it uh, in, a more, in a more amateur way. I grew up on jazz, John Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders, Thelonious Monk. I mean, you know, these very sort of 50s, 60s uh, jazz artists. And so that implanted a very sort of creative, artistic language, uh, vocabulary, it gave me that type of outlook onto life. But the storytelling was, is very interesting because I actually grew up in a, in a very cosmopolitan community where you had people of very different cultures. And I was very fortunate to have storytellers in that community who began to tell me stories, you know, very powerful storytellers, you know, 
sort of storytellers that could have you entranced for two hours and you don't know where the time has gone, you know. So that was where the storytelling came from. And then I, I also went to the, I went to Pakistan when I was about 10, 11 years old. I lived uh, in a year in Pakistan and, and I, I also encountered storytellers there. So I did grow up throughout my, my, my childhood exposed to really quite high quality storytelling from the Native American heritage, from Jewish heritage, from Christian heritage, from Muslim heritage. Those were the seeds that were planted, which have grown into this, this tree of a theatre company and, and all, all of the work that it, that it does. Was it around 97, was it, that you founded the theatre company? From the late 80s onwards, I began to conceive of the idea of a theatre company. I knew that the popular conception of Muslims in Britain really developed on, this, on the Elizabethan stage in you know, Shakespearean plays, plays of Marlowe and others. So I felt that it was really important to, to address some of the intercultural misunderstandings and misconceptions where they started in the social cultural milieu where, 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 where they were born. And so this idea was germinating. And then suddenly in 97, I found myself being surrounded by people within the industry, one of whom became my wife, Eleanor, she had a colleague, Mo Sese, who was, was an up-and-coming, promising actor. They were both working on a, a television series called Dangerfield, if you remember it. And we just started talking. And, you know, we all had this common love of wisdom, traditions, and sacred stories and spirituality. And we sat down one summer day alongside other artists, writers, designers from actually different faith traditions, some Christian, some no particular faith and we uh, we founded the company yeah and so since then we've been you know we we have our first production was called conference of the birds and it was based on a very famous sufi mystical treatise about an allegorical story of birds who go in search of a king which is actually self-realization the king is about self-knowledge and self-realization it's actually a story that had exerted quite a lot of influence on on uh, european writers way back because this, this is a 13th century century text so we, we staged that as our debut production in Notting Hill at the Tabernacle in 98. So it took us a, about a year to get our first production up. So that was, that was the genesis of the whole enterprise. It was, quite a, it was quite a daring genesis because you don't normally start your company with a theater production with a cast of 13. <laughs> so we, we really, we, you know, we were very ambitious and we, we successfully managed it. And by the end of the run, two-week run, we were actually selling out. You mentioned to me a little bit earlier that things have had to change in the last year. How is that moving online? How has everything changed for the company? The pandemic has forced us to go into the digital sphere, to be digital content producers uh, rather than live physical touring a theatre company. So generally the way we would work is every year we would deliver anywhere from 40 to 80 live performance events around the country. And we very quickly had to migrate to digital production. We were fortunate that we were just about to release two promotional films on our live touring. And those films ended up serving as a bridge between our live touring and our digital events production. So uh, that was really helpful for us because it meant that our, our audiences weren't left in limbo. They had something to see, something to learn about us. and. Because it was in the medium of film, it sort of was a transition for our audience to, to our digital productions. But since, since May, we've pretty much been producing film adaptations of our storytelling offerings, and quite successfully. 
there are disadvantages and there are advantages. The advantage is that everything is about global audiences. You know, every time we do an event, we have people from six, seven, eight, nine, ten countries. Um, in our last event, just passed you know, on Sunday, we were presenting a biopic on the life of uh, Abdul Sattar Idi, which who was a very famous uh, humanitarian in Pakistan, nominated several times for the, for the Nobel Peace Prize, was believed by some to be the greatest living humanitarian in his lifetime. And we had a thousand people there from at least 10, 12 countries. One of the clear aims that you have is this process of intercultural engagement and an interfaith engagement. Would you talk a little bit more about that process of how these stories come together? What unites our commonality in the way in which we engage with stories is that we are always working with stories which are exploring the golden rule, treat others as one would want to be treated oneself. And we seek to show in our dramatic exploration of stories how that's a mutuality across different faiths. So through that means we're really aiming to valorize to elevate the currency of the virtues of generosity, of prudence, of patience, of hope, of wonder, conviviality, of good neighborliness, of kindness, thoughtfulness, resourcefulness. <laughs> I mean, you know, we actually sit down with children and, you know, we will present a collection of these stories from four faith traditions, generally Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And afterwards, we're asked, what character virtues do you, did you recognize in the stories? And then we have these very interesting conversations. And it's amazing how children will find layerings of different virtues being expressed at once by a character. And we'll find these virtues in a character which we hadn't seen, you know? So then we have these fascinating conversations around these, uh, around these virtues. And, and you can tell that these children really love these conversations. And they also end up asking us the question, well, if we share all these things in common, if we have this common value for character traits like generosity, like courage, what's the problem? Why, why, do we, why, we, why do we have so much conflict? Why do we have so much misunderstandings? And, and I think through working with the stories which are about a lived experience of faith with all of its challenges and all of its trials and all of its triumphs, we find that especially young people, it helps them get beyond the theoretical and the dogmatic to a place where they're able to step into the shoes of their fellow pupil of another faith or another culture in a way that you wouldn't get in, in if you were just teaching about what people of different faiths believe, because you're actually seeing faith in action. You're actually seeing faith being lived. You're actually seeing how a person seeking to be generous, maybe confounded or, or challenged by certain contexts or realities that they're living in. So that's incredible. I mean, you're often in tears though, because, you know, when the children start speaking and you, you start to see how deeply they're able to consider the, the virtues, it, it is, it's just very, very emotive. In, in Arabic, the word for story is qasas, and, and the actual root meaning of that verb is to step into someone else's footsteps. So, so it is. It is. It is very much around around that, and, and it, it generates empathy. You know, and it uh, when people come to understand how profoundly and deeply they share with others the currency of virtues, I think you know it opens the door for much higher levels of empathy. 
I'll give you an example of 2019. One day in the autumn, we were at a primary school doing these multi-faith stories, four stories on Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, with year five children in primary school. The next day, we were presenting that same set of stories at Linklater's in the Barbican to a mature audience. And the response was pretty much that that spiritual response, that heart-centered response was pretty much the same, despite the huge age gap. That's always for us a very powerful experience to see that. The other thing is what we noticed through that is how important it is for intergenerational storytelling. We like working with intergenerational audiences and we feel that you know, our corporate or commercial storytelling vehicles, television, film, often they silo us. These are kiddie stories. These are mature stories. These are, you know, these are 18 stories, these are 15 stories. And we've begun to think about that, you know, isn't that, isn't that causing us a problem intergenerationally? You know, we talk about, you know, nowadays we're talking a lot about intergenerational gulfs and chasms and lack of understanding and, and so we feel that civilizationally speaking, I think it would help if we had more opportunities where people of different generations are appreciating the same stories. Coming back to yourself, the performers around you, the theatre company itself, does the work that you do affect your own spiritual lives? Oh, most definitely. As creators, we have to live with these stories. And for us, to effectively transmit a story, you have to live that story. So if we're working on a story on generosity, we are plunged into reflection about generosity in our own life, or patience, or courage, or prudence. There's this constant journeying, really, through one's own self, and through one's own psyche, and through one's own heart and mind, examining relationships with character virtues. It definitely changes me from year to year. The other thing is, the characters of these stories, they all now have a place within me. <laughs> so we were doing, uh, at Christmas time, we did um, Jesus Christ Muslim Nativity, where we were telling the story of Christ, mainly from the Muslim tradition, but also drawing on Christian sources. And uh, it was quite something because the asceticism of Christ started to lean on me heavily, you know? And I actually, I actually started to lose my appetite. I actually started to feel when I was eating, I started to become very conscious of how much I was eating when I was thinking about his austerity and his fasting. And, and so that definitely happens with all the characters, especially magnificent characters like, like those, like Christ. And, 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 and that's a very, that's very transformative. It's also horizon broadening. So yeah, so from our point of view, art is not just about benefiting or serving an audience. Art is also about your own growth, your own transformation, your own development, your own cultivation. So you are, in a way, artifying yourself by being a practitioner of art. And, uh, and that's something that, you know, when you, if you look back into the, certainly the, the practices of art in faith, that was always a part of it. If you looked at the look at the illuminationists, you know, who illuminate books, or the calligraphers and everything, as an apprentice in those crafts and those art forms, 
your personal development, your personal cultivation and refinement went hand in hand with your practice of art? I'm interested, we, we've talked a lot about the themes of your work, but there must also be a logistical and a craft and a practical element. How do you create ideas as a company? Is it very collaborative? Does it come from yourself? How do those kind of logistical elements come together? We are a very responsive company. So we have a network of about over 200 host partners across the country that have accumulated over these all these years we've been working. And so most of our work comes out of conversations we've had with our host partners, needs that they have expressed, issues that have concerned them. It's very consultative and collaborative with our host partners, with our audiences. We then go through the process of researching and developing those stories to fulfill the need of our, of our audiences. That process for us is quite resource intensive. And uh, in, in, when I say resource, I mean multiple resources. And most of the time, because we are very different from a lot of theater companies who will be going and picking a play off a shelf, we're actually developing work most of the time which wasn't written for theater. So we're taking stories, which are sometimes, some of these wisdom tales are quite parabolic, quite short. So they need a lot of development and a lot of input to have dramatic body and to take on a dramatic form that is appreciable to an audience. So there's quite a lot of stages that we have to go through to get to get a, a story to the stage. My role is very much chief conceptualist, is to look at a story and say, what purpose can this story serve the, the needs of our audience? How best can it be done? How much do we need to bring to the story? Uh, how much historical research do we need to do from that particular culture or that particular faith? Beyond that is producing. So I don't actually perform, but I, I produce um, and I oversee as an artistic director is to oversee the creative processes throughout the company. Is there a part of that process that you enjoy the most? It's definitely looking at a story and assessing its potential as a, piece of drama that is the most most enjoyable for me and because I've always been since childhood been very imaginationally driven so it, it helps to fulfill that part of me which is which is which is very pronounced so um, I like this saying of Mark Twain and I'm paraphrasing where he says there's not a veil when your imagination is out of focus that's <laughs> very powerful I, I live by that, you know, and the importance of the imagination and how we create our realities through how we imagine and how we exercise a faculty of imagination. And by extension, we create our realities by the stories that we tell ourselves, both as individuals and as communities and societies. So that's where I find most nourishment and exercise in that faculty of imagination in relation to a, a story on a page and just dreaming, dreaming it into something, <laughs> conjuring, conjuring it into something of beauty of, with humor and, you know, wisdom. One of the key aims really about celebrating traditions of Muslim cultures, creating cultural capital for Muslim communities, changing perspectives over time. Have you seen that things have changed since you've been operating? For sure, for sure. So when we began in 97, people were quite incredulous when we said, we're setting up a theatre company to explore Muslim literature. The idea that theatre 
and Muslim heritage and Muslim literature could converge in a theater space in London was seen by many people just to be fantasy, quite, you know, you know, really, I mean, you know, I think about when I think back on it, it's actually quite startling. <laughs> so when we launched uh, the company with our first production, there was a great deal of astonishment. Muslims could not believe they were sitting in a theater in Notting Hill with other Muslims, but people of other faiths and no faiths, watching a production that was an adaptation of a 13th century manuscript of great fame amongst intellectuals, but not well known amongst the masses. That was, a, that was mind blowing for them. And also for a lot of non-Muslims who never thought they would see something like that. Since that time, you know, we ourselves as a company have inspired other theater enterprises in different parts of the country. And there's been a great deal of flowering of artistic enterprise and production across other art forms in Muslim communities over these last 24 years. So the landscape is very different now. We still have a long way to go within Muslim communities because there's still a huge gap between the values accorded to being a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist and being an artist. There is a huge gap between the value of a pound and the value of uh, an hour of an artist's time. <laughs> and so that still makes it a huge challenge for Muslims wanting to go into the arts. Uh, and even as old as we are, you know, quarter of a century almost, that still is a challenge for us because it still means that some huge swathes of the Muslim communities still don't have a commensurate value for artistic production, especially in the performing arts. But, you know, we've seen enough of the positive um, impact of our work to know that we make a difference and, and that we are continuing to, to influence those value systems. And we, we've had many experiences where, you know, for instance, a mother who has basically dissuaded her daughter from going to the arts has experienced our work. And in one instance, comes crying to the performer and saying, I'm so, so, I'm so ashamed that I've been, you know, dissuading my daughter from, dis discouraging my daughter from going to the arts. And, but now that I've seen what art can do through your performance, I'm going to allow my, I mean, I, those sort of experiences are quite something, you know? So, so we know, we know that beauty, uh, the beauty of art, uh, the, mag the magnetism of, um, of, 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 of art, it can have an alchemical effect on people and change their way of thinking and broaden their horizons and raise their aspirations. It'd be interesting to talk a little bit about AMOL, which is the other organisation that you are connected to and that you are a trustee and advisor of. Would you like to talk a little bit more about, about that organisation? AMOL is really a uh, pioneer in the area of supporting Muslim cultural production in this country uh, up until AMOL. We really had no dedicated funding agency, no dedicated advocate even for Muslim culture production in this country and no, and no funder really. So, so I've been very much uh, passionate about Amos work and have supported it from a very, uh, its very inception as a convener of the advisors in 2016, 2017. And so, so yes, we, we, have, we have great dreams and aspirations as to how much of a difference we can make 
to the cultural landscape in this country as it relates to Muslim artists, Muslim culture producers, their relationship with mainstream cultural institutions. In the three or four years that we've been working, we've seen quite dramatic impact from that work, from the way in which we've brokered relationships with artists and the Greenbelt Festival, uh, with artists in the South Bank, with Bradford Literature Festival, many different ways and through many different partners that we have supported and funded. We have begun to um, really demonstrate how, how essential and how important cultural capital and cultural production are within Muslim communities and how they relate to strengthening and fostering relations with other communities. So what's next for the theatre company? What are the next things on the agenda? Well, this performance that we just produced, this, this short film, 40-minute film on the life of Abdul Sattara Idi, is, uh, is something which, which has a, a lot more utility <laughs> and a lot more promise because, I mean, we, we reached a thousand people in one event, but it's already uh, catalyzed a, quite a huge interest in his story and his biopic. So that's something that we will continue to be working with for some years, actually, <laughs> uh, because, you know, it sort of encapsulates a lot of things we've been talking about because uh, Ed, affectionately known as Ed Sahib, Ed Sahib was an advocate of character virtues, of humanitarianism, of, of, the, of the golden rule. And so we have developed a relationship with the Ed Foundation, which is set up now. And so I think there's going to be a lot more we'll be doing around that, developing it into an education pack, you know, driving other applications for it, even around conflict resolution, around leveling up, challenging discrimination and prejudice, you know, social welfare. I mean, you know, there's so much bound up in, in the model that he created. So that work will go on. I think what's coming up for us now, uh, we're we are not that far away from the month of Ramadan. And that's one of our peak periods in, in the Muslim calendar. We will, as with previous years, we'll be coming out with the stories which serve Muslim communities in Ramadan, because that's a time when you get, there's a highest, highest level of contemplation and reflection. And we get, we just get deluged with interest and demand and we're gearing up for that now. And do you have an ambition? Is there anything that you hope to still do, either personally or with the theatre company? Is there something that you're thinking, oh, one day this is what I would love us to do in the future? Well, the big project that we, we are still to deliver and which we've been working on for quite a while is telling the story of coffee because that story inextricably bound up with the emergence of free press in this country the emergence of the insurance industry in this country, the banking industry, what we understand about of liberal democracy, what we understand about the relationship between reason and revelation. So because the coffee houses, coffee house culture was imported to Britain from the Ottoman Empire. And coffee house culture really was a huge transformative period uh, from 1652 onwards when the first coffee house was set up in London. And, you know, it serves as a very interesting lens through which to consider the relationship between Britain and Muslim countries, Muslim cultures. So, so that, that's something that we are, in the next few years, uh, two or three years, we definitely want to bring out for benefit of, of society, uh, because I think it deals with so many issues that... Uh, that have been a subject of, of national conversations for, for a fair few years now. That's uh, quite a big project.
Thank you so much, Lukman. I've really enjoyed hearing some of your story, um, but also hearing about all the different work that your organisation does. It sounds really fascinating. So thank you so much for for giving up your time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, And I've been very interested as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Emily, for having me. I'm very honoured to share with you and your audience. This podcast was produced by me, Emily McGrath. Thank you to all three of my guests, Kevin Lewis, Lucy McGrath and Lukman Ali. This podcast is brought to you by the Resonate Bristol team associated with St Stephen's and Holy Trinity Hot Wheels churches. The music was created by Scott Holmes and accessed through the free music archive. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Resonate Bristol. Join us again next time.